0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N. McClanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same, taught read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. Buy one of the classes there. You can help keep this podcast free of charge by purchasing one or 20 classes, whichever one it is, or two or three or five, whatever. But, of course, you get great content, and you keep this podcast going. You can also click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, get a book plate, put an autograph on one of my books. You can purchase one of my books wherever books are sold. So online, so you get The Jeffersonian Tradition, Southern Scribblings, The Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, The Pig to the Founding Fathers, Pig to Real American Heroes, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, Forgotten Conservatives in American History, lots of great stuff out there to get. So make sure you pick up those books. And as always... Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share these podcasts around on social media. Get people involved in this. This is how we grow the movement organically. And it's, it's growing, right? So we want to do that. So today, I'm going to talk and carry on the theme from yesterday. We were talking about Rachel Sheldon at Penn State University. And I mentioned we're going to talk about Karen Cox this week. Now, Karen Cox is one of the darlings of the Twitter Historian Brigade. The same Twitter Historian Brigade that I uh, just eviscerated in uh, the piece Robert E. Lee versus Twitter Historians. And you can get that in Southern Scribblings. So, these are the people that run around saying things like Confederate monuments were all built to honor white supremacy. Now, I'm going to talk about that because Karen Cox wrote a book Last year, I think it was published last year. And she calls it the book on Confederate monuments. Nobody's ever written anything about this before. I, I'm, that, that claim, I'm going I'm to just blast here in a second, too. But she says it's the book, and she is the OG. She calls herself the OG historian on Confederate monuments. Now, she is the OG maybe of something, but I don't really think. She's not really original of anything. She is an activist, masquerading as a historian who doesn't even defend what she says with actual documentation on some of the things, right? So she says stuff that has no merit because there's no evidence as to what she's saying. Zero. Now, I'm going to talk about a couple of claims she makes and explain where she's way off on this and that she's cherry-picking. In fact, what you find with a lot of these Twitter historians, Kevin Cruz is a bad one for this, but so was Karen Cox, so were some of the others. What you find with them is that they cherry pick stuff to fit and then they interpret it whatever way they want to and then they say this is the proper interpretation of it without any evidence. This is the problem. Without any evidence. These people are just activists using platitudes and slogans and they come in with a preconceived notion and then they find evidence to fit their narrative and that's how it works. Right? Instead of showing the whole picture. well, This is what these people said the, trying to understand. They say, Confederate monuments were put up to honor white supremacy and I'm going to find quotes to prove it. That's not really what a historian does. A historian would say, why were Confederate monuments erected? Let's go out and find all the evidence. Let's go out and, and tell people why these things were done. Now, there are actually two pretty good books that already did this. One, and, and they're not... They're not pro-Confederate at all. In fact, they say some pretty critical things about the South. But one is Gaines Foster. The book is entitled Ghosts of the Confederacy. And it's about the lost cause. But he gets into Confederate monuments. The other is uh, Baptized in Blood. And it's by a historian named Reagan. And uh, Charles Reagan. And it's a very good book. Now, both of these are published from mainstream academic presses. Right? They're both from academic presses. they've been, they had peer review. They are books that tried to figure out what Southerners were doing and thinking. And in both of these books, remarkably, they come away with the conclusion that, yes, Southerners did think about race. Yes, Southerners were racist, but this was not the primary reason why they were building monuments. That's the conclusion. These books are about forty years old. Okay, so, about four decades, 30 30 to 40 years old, four decades. What's changed in four decades? The dopes who are writing the history. In fact, activists like Karen Cox and Rachel Sheldon, this is the problem. You had real historians writing history, and now you have dopey historians, quote-unquote, writing history. Because what these people are is just left-wingers who want to prove that they're right. And in fact, these are the most insecure people you would find. And they're LARPing everywhere. And I'll explain that in a second. They're the most insecure people you would find. They're thin-skinned. They can't take any disagreement. They get very upset when you disagree with them. People disagree with me all the time. In fact, they call me all kinds of names. I've been called just about everything under the sun in social media, on comments, all kinds of things. You can disagree with me all day. That's fine. You're going to be wrong, but you can disagree with me. And that's it. I'm going to say you're wrong. Maybe somebody else says you're right. I don't know. It doesn't hurt my feelings. I'm going to present what I have to say, and that's that. But I'm going to tell you where I get my stuff from, okay? They don't. In fact, what they do when they make some of these grand assertions, they don't even note it, and they can't. Because there's no evidence for what they're saying. I'm going to give you an example of that. In this book, I'm going to go through... And then also a dissertation I read a couple of years ago that did the exact same thing. It's hilarious in how they do this some of this stuff. And people will read that dissertation and say, well, I was reading this dissertation. Somebody said this. But is there any evidence? No. Oh, then why can you say this? The other thing about Karen Cox, you know she's insecure when she has to put Dr. Karen Cox in her social media account because you have to show that you have that doctorate. You have the authority. You are a doctor. Now, that only works if, for the left if they think that your doctorate isn't something that applies. For example, Phil Magnus has just, again, uh, just, I I think, abused the 1619 Project to a point where I don't even know why these people think that um, they can even say anything and have any credibility. If you read Phil Magnus and what he's done with 1619, it's absolutely hilarious. But Phil Magnus has a PhD, by the way. He doesn't put it in his bio, and you have all these people, well, you don't have a Ph.D. in history. You're a Ph.D. in public policy or whatever. Well, a lot of the people writing for these publications don't have a Ph.D. in history. They have it in sociology. I mean, look, James Lowen, this is hilarious. Lies my teacher told me. Oh, James Lowen, great historian. He's a sociologist. He's a sociologist. Now, I would say that sociologists can write history. Heck, the plumber can write history. Anybody can write history not that hard. You just go out and find the stuff and you write it down. Now, writing is a skill, right? But finding material and writing about it, it's not that hard. It's not like we're we're out there performing brain surgery, right? So, uh, most of the people I know that are on our side don't put doctor in their social media accounts, even when they have it. I don't. I know a lot of other of my colleagues don't do it. They just are who they are. And if you want it, I mean, yeah, they have a doctorate, but they don't run around trying to make themselves feel more important with doctor, or professor. You see these are people that are really insecure and they know that what they're doing is not right, so they have to put that out there the credential to show that they're authorities. These are all it's all about showing authority. Authority. I think I have in my uh, in my Twitter bio that I have a PhD, but I don't have doctor in front of my name, and I do that just because people are going to say, well, who's this guy? What kind of credentials is there? Well, there's my credentials, right? I've got a PhD in history, so I have the same little thingy that I can put in front of my name that they put in front of their name, or the same little letters after my name they can put after their name. We're all credentialed, all the same thing, and I disagree with them based on my reading and what I found in primary documents. I'll also say this, I read more primary documents than I do secondary sources. Secondary sources, particularly modern secondary sources, are not really worth your time. But I do read some of them so I can have podcast fodder. But all that said, let's talk about Karen Cox's book, No Common Ground. This is a book she said is the definitive book on Confederate monuments. Nobody's ever done this before, except in the book that she says that other people have done this before. But on her social media account, this is it. Nobody's ever done this before. I'm the OG. Yeah, the OG of stupidity. The OG activist. Maybe, I don't know. But you're an activist, not a historian. And the book is dedicated... To this, this made me laugh out loud. For everyone who speaks truth to power, these people LARP all over the place. Somehow, Karen Cox has gotten her mind that she's speaking truth to power in this book. People like Karen Cox control every major university in the United States. Every major history department, every one. Now, the ones that they don't control in some of the other schools still have people that think like her in those departments or in those institutions. They may not control it, but you're talking about maybe like a handful of schools in the United States. Every, every Ivy League school, every public Ivy, every single major research institution in the United States is controlled by Karen Cox's. So who's really in power there? Rachel Sheldon is in line with Karen Cox. And as we're going to see tomorrow, when we talk about Win Allen Root, They control not just the major research institutions. They control entertainment. They control corporations. They control the conservative and liberal side of American politics. When I say they control these things, they control major corporations like Coca-Cola. Right? Like the NFL. Like Major League Baseball. Like the NBA. That's entertainment and corporate. They control all of that stuff. I mean, you can go down the line of corporations they control that have come out when the woke stuff. I mean, this is all they control, all those things. They control them. They control all of your major social media accounts. Big tech is controlled by people like Karen Cox. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Google. It's all controlled by people like Karen Cox. So, who's really in power here? They control. The leadership in both major parties, to to a great extent, as we'll see with Wayne Allen Root. And the Straussians, the neoconservatives, they all agree with this stuff. They all agree with these things. So who's really speaking truth to power? Not Karen Cox. As a matter of fact, Karen Cox wouldn't know what it's like to speak truth to power if it hit her in the face. Because she is power. People like me are speaking truth to power. Because people like me are calling out these nimrods for what they are. Nimrods stupid. So you get into this book and she begins with the first chapter. And I'm just going to focus on this. Rewriting history in stone. Now, rewriting history. Rewriting history. Now, she's written books on the UDC and she's very, she's, she's, she talks about, in the introduction, wrangling with the the, uh, the UDC, wrangling with them. Like, she has to wrestle with these people because they're so hard to get around. With. So, she writes this book, and the entire point of the book is to talk about how these monuments were built to honor white supremacy. That's it. She starts with that premise. The monuments are built to promote white supremacy, and I'm going to prove it. Not Let's go out and look at what these monuments were erected for and then see if there's something to this. And she uses secondary sources to defend some of this. And then in much of the book, where she makes some pretty grand assertions, there's no evidence. No evidence. She says, in order to understand monuments of any kind, it is important to grasp the intentions and motivations of those who sought to erect a monument in the first place. Okay. Sure. Let's do that. Let's, let's understand the motivations behind it with the information that we're given, which would be the public documents, speeches, letters, all of that kind of stuff. And she's going to make a claim here that I'm going to, I'm going to talk about what that actually meant in a minute. This holds true for Confederate monuments, which have, been, which have dominated the Southern landscape for more than 150 years. They were placed there by white Southerners whose intentions were not to preserve history, but to glorify a heritage that did not resemble historical facts. Well, that's not true. <laughs> not to represent Historical facts actually did line up with what they were saying. By erecting these statues, white Southerners have over time upheld a past in which the ideals of Confederate nationalism rest on metaphorical pedestals of heroism and sacrifice, while at the same time they negate the leg- legacy of slavery and suggest that all white Southerners were committed to the Confederate cause which they were not. Now, what's funny is she she cites, if you click on, there's a note here. She cites a book, on this point, see Masterless Men. As she notes, poor whites were in conflict with the desires of the Southern slaveocracy. But uh, that's one book. Let me cite another one, like Gary Gallagher's The Confederate War. It's amazing she's kind of forgotten about that book. And Gary Gallagher is by no means a quote-unquote neo-Confederate. Gary Gallagher is just, wrote a history of what the Confederacy thought about the war. And you know what he found? It was overwhelmingly supported by every class in society. Yes, there were people that opposed the war in the South. Yes, there were Southerners who didn't want to fight for the South. We know some of them joined the Union Army. We know this. But the fact is... The vast majority of Southerners, 75% of the white male population of the South fought in the war. 75%. So, even if you just said 25% didn't, but how many of those people were exempt for one reason or another? But we know 75% fought in the war. That is a huge commitment. But she says... She leaves it out. Not all white Southerners were committed to the Confederate cause. Okay, well, all right. Some some weren't. Yeah, this is true. Some weren't. The vast majority were. 75% were. So, are we going to say that then 25% get to determine the history of the 75%? Of course not. But this is what this doofus is doing. And she leaves out the fact that this period of time saw a tremendous surge in monument building across the United States, not just in the South, but in the North. And you know what they didn't really talk about in the North? Slavery. It's mentioned on a few monuments. It's mentioned at a few dedication ceremonies. But you know what it's not? Most of the monuments and most of the dedication ceremonies. So uh, they left that out. And why? Well, because to them, that wasn't why they went to war. It wasn't what they were trying to do. Certainly, slavery ended, and they'll say things like, well, slavery ended, that's good, but the reason they went to war was for the Union. Then she says this, Over time, monument supporters concocted new language to defend the South's monuments or to employ them in defense of the region itself. In the 1950s, the Confederate tradition expanded to include Cold War rhetoric that warned Southern whites that the Civil Rights Movement and federal intrusion were linked to communism. Well, some of that was true, right? I mean, we know some civil rights leaders were communists. (laughs) So, is that not true? There's evidence there that shows this. This Is this true? By the way, the 1950s, what's going on in the 1950s? Oh, wait, we're about at the centennial of the war. 1961 to 1965, we're at the centennial. What's going on about 1910? 1890 to 1910, somewhere in there. All of these old soldiers are starting to die off, and we're at the 50th anniversary of the war. Oh, gee, you think people want to erect monuments around 50 years? Wow. You see, what what Cox and other do- doofuses don't understand is that correlation is not causation. The fact that Southerners were racist or said racist things at this time doesn't mean that's why the monuments were being built. It doesn't, correlation doesn't mean causation. Now She's right. Some people said some pretty racist things at times. But the way she said it, though, what she uses, they don't really understand what's being said here as well. So I'm going to get into that. In the immediate post-Civil Rights era, words like equality were employed in the defense of monuments, while during the era of multiculturalism, supporters argued the need to protect Confederate American heritage. During the post-911 years, monument defenders likened removal to the Taliban's destruction of cultural artifacts. The target kept shifting because the statue was not about history, Rather, they symbolize something even more precious to the cause of white supremacy, protecting the southern way of life. Now, again, she's also creating a false dichotomy here. The false dichotomy is that southerners were only racist in America and that northerners weren't racist. That somehow southerners were telling a story of the past that was inaccurate and northerners were telling the accurate story. That's simply not true. We know that racism was across the United States. In fact, how do we know this? Because Boston didn't integrate until the 1970s. But of course, they're just telling the right story of the past. and They're just telling the right things. And these Southerners are trying to tell lies. Lies. Consequently, it's not a stretch to argue that removing a monument is not removing history. At least not the history of, of the Confederacy rather the real history of these statues and markers is about their impact as objects of reverence for many white southerners though not all and as painful reminders of slavery and Jim Crow for generations of black southerners it's not a stretch to argue but it is a stretch to argue <laughs> i mean so this is this is editorializing this is where the book is ridiculous And as historian Melinda Maynor-Lowry has written, the history of Confederate monuments also erases Indians, as well as Asians, Middle Easterners, Latinos, and other diverse peoples who call the South home. No, it doesn't. Were there not Latinos who fought for the South? How about uh, Asians who fought for the South? How about Indians? How about blacks? We know all these people did. We know, for example, there was, in the Oklahoma Territory, many of the tribes fought for the Confederacy. So does a Confederate monument erase their history? Uh, but we also know the Union government was out destroying Indian civilization across the plains during the war. So who's really erasing their history? And this is where Lowry is a dope, just as dopey as Karen Cox. We know the original Siamese twins had sons who fought for the Confederacy. So is that denying in- Asians a history in the South? I told the story before about uh, the guy that wrote me that... Um, had some Chinese businessmen go to Texas and da- Dallas, Texas, in the 1980s. And all they wanted to see was the Robert E. Lee Monument. Boy, they really hate these things, right? I mean, it's so bad. These things are so racist that these Asians from China, Chinese businessmen, want to go see the Robert E. Lee Monument. Why? Because that's giving a big middle finger to the United States in some ways. This is why they want them taken down, because what it's doing is undermining, and they said this when these monuments were built, some of the dedication ceremonies, by putting this monument up, we're essentially telling the United States government that you have not conquered us. Maybe you occupied us, and you've controlled us, but you have not conquered us. And it's a monument to defiance. One of the most American things. Understanding the fundamentals of that history is essential if communities are to make informed decisions about what to do with the statues in their midst. How about leave them alone, right? The ultimate purpose of the pages that follow is to provide the historical foundation that will allow readers to grasp where these monuments fit in the history of the post-Civil War South and all that came after. No, no, the ultimate, let me me rephrase what she said. The ultimate purpose of these pages that follow is to be an activist and make sure these monuments are taken down. Uh, She could have shortened that up. To be a leftist activist and to make sure the monuments are taken down. <clears throat> to begin, monuments are not just pillars of stone without meaning. Every monument also represents a system of beliefs, nor are they purely static objects. The groups who erected them, whether ladies' memorial associations, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, or the men's organizations that have built the most recent ones, do not just put them up and walk away. Throughout their history, Confederate monuments became reanimated on an annual basis through rituals held on Confederate Memorial Day and the birthdays of Confederate generals during Civil War reenactments and the protests against the removal. There is also a distinction to be made between memorials and monuments. While memorials serve to commemorate the dead through a special day or in public service, they are not monuments. On the other hand, monuments are always a type of memorial. For more than a century, white Southerners have gathered gathered around these memorials to recall the Confederate past and reassert their commitment to the values of their ancestors. Wait, I thought you just said they weren't really memorials, they're monuments. Now they're saying they're memorials. I don't know. The very same values that resulted in a war to defend slavery and expand the institution. See, it's all about just defending slavery. All about that. Thus, whether they stand on courthouse lawns or in cemeteries, and regardless of the additional meanings they have taken over the course of 150 years of history... Confederate statues have always been attached to the cause of slavery and white supremacy. It doesn't matter where they are. You see, what she just did there is say it doesn't matter. These things are in a cemetery with dead soldiers. It's all just about defending slavery. It's all what it's all about. It's what it is. And white supremacy. This also, again, creates a false dichotomy. If the war was about defending slavery and white supremacy, that would mean the North was against white supremacy and in favor of abolishing slavery which we know was not the case in 1861, and we know they weren't against white supremacy throughout the entire war. And we know this because Lincoln was a white supremacist. We know this. The connection between white supremacy and Confederate monuments is not an exaggeration or an after-the-fact revisionist interpretation. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. 100% is. And now here's where she gets into something she really doesn't know what she's talking about. Confederate veterans openly used the term Anglo-Saxon supremacy, which today we refer to as white supremacy. That's what we might refer to it today's, but that's not what they meant. See, here's where she's actually not being a historian. Well, if I read that in a book and it said, okay, this guy said we're, we're looking at Anglo-Saxon supremacy or Anglo-Saxon history. They use that term Anglo-Saxon a lot. What did they actually mean by that? So the historian would seek out to understand what that meant and not say, which today we refer to simply as white supremacy. But is that what they meant at the time? What they meant at the time was a particular type of heritage. In fact, if you go back, there was a speech that uh, Douglas Southall Freeman made at uh, an anniversary of, in front of the Lee, Lee Monument. And he was very clear. He said, look, he talked about Anglo-Saxon supremacy. He talked about that, but he also included in that a whole bunch of other people we would call white. Irish, Germans, a whole bunch of other people, right? I can't remember the list, but there's a number of other white people that he differentiated from Anglo-Saxons. You see, Anglo-Saxon supremacy was not, quote-unquote, white supremacy. It was it was English supremacy and the principles and the culture of that group, the Anglo-American tradition, meaning resistance to central authority, the rule of law, the liberties that have been passed down since the Magna Carta. This is what they were talking about, not white, because they actually thought there were different white peoples. Right? Um, this is this was done all the time. They they were they were splitting hairs on race here. It doesn't mean white supremacy, it means particular group of white people that would have all of these things from the legacy of the English. That's what they're talking about. They did use it, but you have to understand what they were talking about. In the 19th century and early 20th century, there was not just white and black. They actually saw things differently in terms of race than we do today. This is why the English could skin themselves a different race than the Germans. Yet they're all white. We would just consider them all white today. They're just all white. See, we, in fact, what's happened with all of these quote-unquote diversity people is that they've just taken every European and thrown them all in together and said they're all just white. Well, if we did that with people in Africa, we would cons- be considered racist for saying something like that. But you can do it with Europeans all day. Well, they're all just white. But that's not the case. different cultures, different backgrounds, different different heritages. I mean, this is, this is important. But no, they don't get that. So they're not seeking to... She's not seeking to understand here. She's just saying, which today we simply recall. But that's not what it meant then. So you're not really a historian anymore, are you, Karen Cox? You just become an activist. A stupid one at that, but an activist. And then she gets into the KKK and how uh, this was all about the KKK. And yes... People did talk in these books about glorifying the Klan. And she brings up a, uh, this is is one of her, you know, gotcha moments. In 1914, Laura Martin Rhodes, a UDC member from Mississippi, published a booklet on the KKK that was endorsed by both the UDC and the Sons of Confederate Veterans as a publication that should be placed in school libraries. She hoped that it would inspire white Southern youth with respect and admiration for the Confederate soldiers, who, she wrote, were the real Ku Klux. These sturdy white men of the South, she declared, maintained white supremacy and secured Caucasian civilization. Later, adding that during Reconstruction, their efforts helped to maintain the supremacy of the white race. Now, notice there she didn't say Anglo-Saxon. She, she actually said Caucasian civilization and white race. Now, okay, if she if she if Anglo-Saxon simply meant white people, then that's what it would have really meant but that's not what it meant so they were actually clear when they were saying something else this is the point they were clear about it in one case Actually, in fact in both cases what that meant she just doesn't want to admit that and yes people said these things and of course uh, there were southerners who glorified the Ku Klux Klan as a redemption as something saving the south from the Republican Party because that was the primary target most of the time the Republican Party Uh, all right, so then she gets into Edward Pollard and Pollard writing the book, The Lost Cause, A New Southern History of the War of the Confederates. Um, she says, a new Southern history immediately suggested this was intended as a partisan assessment of the war, even as the first histories of the war were just being published. So there it is. It's all about new. It's all about, re, uh, you know, revision. What Southerners were aware of is that, of course, what books were re- being written about the war and the South and the sectional crisis that were not kind to the South. So they were going to write their own histories. There's nothing wrong. People do this all the time. What are we seeing now for the other side? They're just doing the exact same thing. And if Karen Cox has said, well, you know, we've seen this before and Southerners doing this, this is just, this is just a beauty. Wasn't that undermining your own position? That if that's bad, should we not then do critical race theory? Because that's the same thing. That's bad, too. Or should we just have both and accept both? I guess people have their history. Southerners have their history. And one, I mean, which one's wrong then? Which one's right? If we're going to be just sophists, then let's just be sophists. She's saying, of course, CRT is right and the other one's wrong. Because the other one was revision. This one's the right history, but that was also revision history too. So revisionist history. So anyways. She says, of course, Harriet Beecher Stowe, he called Harriet Beecher Stowe all kinds of negative things. And she uses uh, language here that in a book, you would think you could write out. It's primary documentation. But no, she has to put stars in because the word is so heinous now that you can't even put it. She can put all kinds of foul language on her social media account, but you can't say this word. Even in a book with a direct quotation, you can't say it. So I'll leave it to your imagination what that word is. Uh, Then as you go through it, she she talks about Pollard, but I want to get to a part where she has no citations. And it's on page 20 of the book. Um, And so on page 20, she says some pretty embarrassing things, or at least she says some things that, again, have no... Citations? Why? Because you can't cite these things, even though you're making a pretty, pretty bold statement. She says Confederate commemorative activity helped reinforce another form of white supremacist messaging at courthouses and statehouses, racial violence. As Cheryl Eiffel writes in her book On the Courthouse Lawn, courthouses were a deliberate choice of venue for lynchings. While Eiffel's book is focused on the eastern shore of Maryland, her claim carries weight in other parts of the South, where public spaces were used to enforce the messages of white supremacy, often violently. Well, is there any evidence of that? So you click on her note, you go out to note 11, and note 11 is Eiffel's book. But yet, nothing else, nothing else from any other place, in any other part of the United States, that has any evidence of this whatsoever. Just one citation for a secondary source that is conjecture. And I say this because this is what these people do. There's probably, I haven't read Eiffel's book, but I can almost guarantee you there's no evidence that what she's saying is true. She's just making that up, and I point to a dissertation I read on a southern plantation. This plantation had a hospital. Had a hospital, right? Which, if you think about it, if these people were simply just interested in abusing people, why would they build a hospital on the plantation? Why would they do that? We know that northern wage workers didn't have this kind of medical access. Ready medical access, right by where they were living, a hospital. We know that most of them didn't have that. Medical care was rudimentary at best for most Americans, and access to it was downright pathetic. But here you have, on a southern plantation, a hospital. So that should be pretty amazing if you think about it. Look, they actually provided medical care, which is what southerners said they were doing. But they actually provided this stuff. That's not good enough. So what the author says is, well, wait a second. Um, This is done to enforce white supremacy because they're showing these slaves that they are so dependent on the owner, on the master, that they're going to have their hospital there. If they don't do right, they don't get medical care. There's no evidence of this at all. At all. But yet this is the claim that's made. This is the kind of stuff that's said with no evidence. Lynch mobs often overpowered local sheriffs, some of whom were complicit, removing black prisoners located in the jails adjacent to courthouse only to lynch them in front of the courthouse itself. As Eiffel points out, these and other lynchings are not community secrets. Members of the local white community knew about them and were often complicit in the violent acts, which were frequently committed in public. Hundreds and sometimes thousands attended these spectacles. Is this just in the South or also in the North? Because we know it happened in the North. In fact, it happened in Nebraska... One of the largest, uh, nastiest race riots in America, happened in Nebraska. But, you know, hey, just in the South, right? Just in Confederate monuments. Those who argue that Confederate monuments are simply about heritage willfully ignore the historical and physical context in which they were built. It is nearly impossible to ascribe innocent veneration of the war dead to those who constructed Confederate monuments, especially during the rise of Jim Crow and racial violence. Why is it impossible? correlation doesn't mean causation, but see, she's making conjectures here without any evidence to back it up. Building a monument to the Confederacy on grounds where laws were made or upheld, especially during the heyday of the UDC between the mid-1890s and World War I, which, by the way, is about the 50th anniversary of the war, symbolizes more than paying homage to Confederate heroes. Courthouse lawns are supposed to be democratic public spaces since they surround the buildings where citizens engage with the government. Given that, it is important to understand that statues were placed adjacent to courthouses with the full support of local white men, well, okay, who worked inside their walls. Therefore, a Confederate monument, especially one that rose several feet in the air so that it could not go unnoticed or was stationed directly in front of courthouse doors, was an intentional statement about who made laws and who enforced them. In the Jim Crow period, those laws very often sought to do one of two things. Keep African Americans as second-class citizens or, in, or incarcerate them. Now, where is the evidence of this? Where does she have documents saying, well, this, this guy said this is why they're doing it. This guy said this is why they're doing it. This person said this. There's none. In fact, you know what's missing there? A note. Anybody, if, if, I was, if Karen Cox came to me in a class, if this was a, sem- a writing seminar in graduate school, that particular paragraph would have been ripped to absolute shreds. Because where is your evidence? We're supposed to be historians following the evidence. Where is the evidence? In fact, she keeps going. She keeps going several pages without citing anything until she gets to Note 12. You know what she cites in Note 12? The cornerstone speech. So the cornerstone speech is somehow proof that these monuments that were built in the courthouse were built because of white supremacy. Now, that is not just a stretch. It's like crossing the Grand Canyon to get somewhere. But this is what she's done, and this is the definitive book on Confederate monuments. Go read Gaines Foster instead. Go read Charles Reagan instead, because their books are much, much better. In fact, there's other books that were written on this, even by people that, you know, um, Bo Trawick, I think, has written one. It's very good. Uh, So... There's other books out there besides this stupidity. Then she goes on. The practical uses of these monuments, especially those alongside courthouses, both reveal and reinforce the true meaning. These statues have often been the site of gatherings during moments of racial unrest, precisely because they stand on government landscapes in the center of towns. So people would go to the center of town to talk about things because it was the center of town. But no, it's just because of the monument that they're there. It's not because it was the center of town or maybe because this was the public square, so you'd put a monument to war veterans in the public square. I mean, these are things that other people did. At other times in history, you put monuments in public squares. No, that can't be it. It's all about white supremacy. The truth is, the truth is, the truth is, Without any evidence, any verification, anything. But this is the truth now. The truth is that the same white citizens who gathered to watch a black man get lynched in the town were often the same white citizens who gathered for the unveiling of a Confederate monument. (laughs) You see, the monumental, she's having to make stuff up here to prove her point. No evidence. Zero, zero, zero. Yet, this is a book of history. No, it's not. It's a polemic. It's an op-ed. Masquerading as a history book. It's stupid. So, I could go on. This book is absolute garbage. I've already gone way over my time than I normally go on these things. I could go on with this book. I could probably dedicate a whole week to ripping this book apart because it's just ridiculously bad. I did buy it, by the way. So, at least uh, Karen Cox, I can say that uh, I gave her uh, four bucks or something because they usually get about 50% of a, of a Kindle price. I gave her about four bucks Uh, to go and and rip this first part of the book to shreds. But the rest of it's just as bad. You got I mean, if you wanna spend ten bucks and go and laugh and have a good laugh and think this is where historians are, this they're this stupid, yeah, you can do that too. So anyways, hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.